Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Um, I came off a flight at like 5.30 this morning, so yeah. Um, so first service, I couldn't get some of my words out. That might happen. I might also collapse. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, so please just extend a lot of grace to me. I'm going to need it. I was at the uh, Progressive Asian American Christian Conference, and I want to say thank you to all of you, because the reason I was able to go was because of your giving. And I got to hear Dee tell their story. Dee is a member of our community. I got to hear Sarah. I got to see both of them in a space where they felt affirmed and they felt their full selves. And I got to be around a community of our next, our next generation of the new church, a progressive Asian Americans. So thank you for sending me out there. I grew up in a multi-religious and multi-ethnic home. And we never argued about each other's differing beliefs. We attended both temple and we went to church. Um, we celebrated all the religious holidays together. My parents built a home that was grounded on religious tolerance and acceptance. And it was beautiful until I converted and became a born-again Christian. My parents didn't know what to do with me. I threw out all the secular music that I had, all the, the, my CDs that existed back then, all, and saved up all this money to buy, threw them all out. I started wearing these t-shirts with Christian puns on them. Um, like the one that was like, it's, it's supposed to say Sprite, but it was Holy Spirit. Yep, I had a shirt that said that. No judgment, right? I also wore a chastity thing, the uh, chastity ring. I told you my words are mixed up. I wore a chastity ring, which my parents weren't too mad about. But things got real when I came home one day and I demanded that my family remove all the statues from our home, statues of Indian deities and statues of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And I said that we can't have these statues in our home because it means we're worshiping idols and then we're going to hell. I didn't say that. So I and then I started refusing to take part in family traditions that were part of our, the religious holidays that we all celebrated. And I, I didn't even do it quietly. I had an air of righteousness about myself when I did it. I would cross my arms boldly and arrogantly and sit outside temple while my family was inside. When we'd go to church, Catholic church, I would cross my arms over my chest in refusing communion. Can you just think for a moment the irony of that? Refusing to commune with fellow Christians. And up to this point, my parents, they were fairly understanding of this newfound, my enthusiasm for this newfound religion of mine. Um, but I, I really crossed the line when I made it my mission to convert them so that they could all go to heaven. And as you can imagine, that didn't go down well with my family. It brought a lot of division and a lot of tension. It hurt my family. So fast forward, and now in my faith walk, I'm, I'm in my early 20s, and I know, no words. And I'm at a very liberal, hippie college in Australia where everyone walks around without shoes on. That's a whole other story, no judgment once again. 
and I'm also attending a pretty conservative church, and I'm able to hold both these worlds well. I keep them apart and separate. I'm not out to convert anyone. I go to church simply for my own spiritual growth until one evening, my friend, we'll call him Mark, he came up to me and he asked me for prayer because he just came out to his parents. And he felt like such a failure to his Christian family for being gay. He felt as if that he was a, a mistake, a huge disappointment to them. This is my friend who was like the funniest, most sweetest, kindest man I knew. And he felt like his attraction to men was somehow punishment for something he didn't even know. And so when I prayed for him, I had a really hard time getting the words out because I was ashamed for the very first time of being Christian. My friend felt guilty for being simply who he was and felt a burden to his family. And this was all brought on by his faith, his faith that told him that he wasn't acceptable in God's eyes, that he didn't belong in this Christian club, his faith that shaped his family's decision in kicking him out of their home when he came out to them. I suddenly saw what it felt like to be on the side of the other in Christianity. I saw in my friend how he was isolated and made to feel ashamed. And I saw how I had done that to my own family, how I decided that they weren't acceptable and made it my mission to change who they were. I saw the effects of doing that, the effects of this toxic version of Christianity on my friend who had blessed me and encouraged me through college. And then I was no longer enthused by my faith that excluded him. Earlier this year, I was at um, one of my fellowship intensives in January and a Korean-American theologian by the name of Sung Chan-ra came up and he spoke about church trends in the future. He said that American Christianity overall is in a slow decline, that every year fewer and fewer Americans were identifying as Christians. Of the ones that, didn't, that did identify as Christians, they didn't attend, attend church regularly, or they didn't see that there was a need for organized religion at all. Recently, Christian Post confirmed the same thing. They said that there's been a sharp drop in church membership over the recent years, particularly by millennials who are leaving the church. And I think a big part of this is because the Christianity that we see today has become this exclusive club, where in order to stay in, we have to follow these sets of rules, otherwise we'll be kicked out, like my friend. Pastors have justified the exclusivity of this club by saying, the Bible says this, and the Bible says that. They've used scripture to condone the us versus them rhetoric of the church. But this generation is beginning to see that it no longer makes sense to be a part of something that isolates people, that overburdens them with guilt and shuts them out of the reality of God's grace. Jesus said in Matthew 23, you Pharisees and teachers of the law of Moses are in trouble. You're nothing but show-offs. You lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. You won't go in yourselves and you keep others from going in. This generation, like Jesus did then, sees right through the hypocrisy of Christianity and its ugly history and they don't want any part of it. And neither do I. 
But then where does that leave us who've come into church this morning? How do we continue to practice a faith that is rooted in scriptures that say, if you don't obey these rules, then you are out. You are excluded from the love of God. Or worse, that you are punished if you sin against God. And I don't think that we should. We're not supposed to. Because Jesus didn't. And God never said to do that either. Somehow we've muddled up this message from the Gospels to now and made, made Christianity exclusive. And to understand how we got there, let me go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we read of a jealous God, a God that doesn't want you to worship anyone but them. We read of a God who blesses people who obey, who obey them and curses them when they, don't, when they don't. And we read of a God that helps the people of Israel conquer the land that's around them, of their neighbors. But then when they lose battles, they say, oh, it's because you were disobedient. And that's why you lost that battle. So these stories are littered throughout the Old Testament. And so it's easy to assume that our creator is violent, angry, jealous, and exclusive. And then throughout Christian, Christian history, these stories have inspired violence towards others. It has led to the hostility and animosity between people groups and division in humanity as a whole. This goes completely against what Jesus preached. These stories of war against people of different faiths in the Old, Des in the Old Testament justified our own treatment of other faith followers. It justified our distrust of people of other faiths. Today, it justified the tragic shootings in multiple mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand that happened just last month. And then I read that that might have inspired the bombings that were in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday. A few days ago, I read an article that said that an ill-informed interpretation of the scripture inspired a churchgoer who was fed bad theology to go into a synagogue and shoot two people just last weekend. What are we doing? This us versus them mentality has broken humanity and people don't want to contribute to being part of the church institution because of that. We are beginning to realize that this is, doesn't add up to the message of the gospel. Jesus didn't call on his disciples to conduct mass genocide on people who didn't believe in him. Jesus didn't call on his disciple to punish anyone who wasn't Jewish. Jesus didn't call on anyone to punish people who didn't follow the Mosaic laws. Jesus came to reveal that God's love was inclusive of all people, extending beyond the people of Israel. And all four Gospels have examples of that. One example is when Jesus healed the 10 lepers. Who remembers that story? No Sunday school? Yep, thank you. Jesus healed the 10 lepers in Luke 17. One of them was a Samaritan. And Jesus makes a point of healing the Samaritan because the Samaritan was the only one who turned around and thanked him. Luke says in verse 17, Jesus asked, weren't all 10 lepers healed? Where are the other nine? Didn't anyone else return and give praise to God except this outsider? Then Jesus said to him, get up and go. Your faith has healed you. 
the Samaritan thanked Jesus because out of all of the 10 lepers, he was the one that was least likely to have been healed or even given any face time by a rabbi because he was a Samaritan. You see, this guy was probably hanging out with all the other lepers because they were all excluded by their people who didn't want anything to do with them. So they all hung out together as outcasts. But then the moment that they were healed, what happened was he became an outsider again. It didn't matter whether they were Jew or Gentile before because they were all suffering the same, but now without the suffering, he was an outsider. He was different. He was a foreigner. So the Samaritan was particularly thankful to Jesus because Jesus saw past his ethnic identity. Jesus saw him and said, you are worthy of being healed. You're worthy of blessing even though you are an outsider. Jesus demonstrated love and care, and care for someone who was a foreigner. Jesus restored his validity as a person. So now get this, what Jesus did was demonstrative of God's heart for all of God's people and not limited to just the people of Israel as originally thought. And we know this because this story of healing of this leper is mirrored in another story of a healing of another leper in the Old Testament. And that is Naaman. Who knows Naaman? Some nods. It's okay. Sometimes I feel like when I go back to these old stories, like I really have to like, read the kid stuff version of it to go, oh yeah, that's, I remember it now. Cause then you read the Bible and it's like, whoa, these are some big words, even for me, <laughs> honestly. So Naaman is a Gentile Syrian who went to the king of Israel to be healed of leprosy because he heard from someone that there was a uh, prophet who would be able to heal him. So he goes, leaves where he's at, goes, travels to Israel to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel is furious because I don't know what structure they lived in back then if you were a king, if it was a palace or t I don't know what it was. But anyway, here's this leper, a foreigner in his home and the king is like, I don't have time for you. I can't heal you. And so Elisha, a prophet, hears about this and he says, Naaman, go to the river. Go to the river Jordan. Go dunk yourself in the water and you will be healed. And then he was. Elisha says these exact words in 2 Kings 5.10. He says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Elisha, a prophet asked Naaman to go into a river for healing. Now I want you to take a look at this map of the river Jordan real quick so we can visualize where all of this took place. So here on this map, you can see that really thin blue line where it says Lebanon and Syria, and that's the River Jordan flowing right down there. So we see Lebanon and Syria, and it goes down to Israel. So back then, the nation of Galilee was up where it says Lebanon, and south of that was the nation of Samaria. Then Judea was where it says Israel. Um, Google told me that, so if it's inaccurate, I'm not a historian, I'm just a pastor. And if anyone knows better, please tell me. <laughs> so you can see that this river today flows through many nations, many national barriers. And back then it did the same thing. This river provides water for many people, many groups of people. It's the same water. It doesn't discriminate. It's the same place where people go bathe or get nourishment. It's the same water. 
And so you see, Elisha, he could have asked Naaman to go to any part of that river to be healed. He could have even sent Naaman back to Syria because you can see it flows past Syria. He could have said, go back to Syria and be healed. But Elisha took Naaman in, a foreigner, and extended care to him to show what restorative justice looks like. Elisha, through the healing in this river, spoke restoration into Naaman's life because what he did is he first restored Naaman by physically healing him, and then, secondly, he restored his personhood as a Syrian by saying, come here, into this land, into my land, my home, and you will be healed because the king didn't give him any face time. Elisha ministered to Naaman, and in doing so, he took a step towards restoring their two people groups. Jesus, in a similar act, when he drew attention to the fact that the most thankful of all the lepers was a foreigner, he was showing how God's heart for the restoration is not just for the people of Israel, but it is for all. Jesus demonstrates this in his sermons and in his actions and in the fulfillment of scripture that God intended, that God's intention is for grace and love to be extended to all past the barriers of Israel. That every human being that suffers from inequities because of, just because of who they are, every human being who slips up just because they are human, to every human being born outside the boundary of Israel with a different upbringing, a different culture, of a different tribe, having different faith, rules, and rituals. God's desire for restoration includes everyone. Jesus demonstrated this expansive nature of God's love when he talked to the woman at the well. He tore down the cultural barrier because he spoke to a woman who was also a Samaritan. He tore down the cultural barriers when he ministered to the Gentiles in Galilee, when he fed the, five, fed the 5,000, who remembers that story? He fed 5,000 Jews and Gentiles together, the same food. He tore down cultural barriers when he healed the daughter of the Canaanite woman. This is how he lived out what it meant to love the other, to love thy neighbor. This is how Jesus demonstrates that there's a trajectory in God's love that began in the Old Testament where love and grace covers all, just like this river that flows through the valleys and through all the national boundaries. It serves all, beginning in this story with Elisha's actions and then Jesus, and now we. We must continue in carrying this all-expansive grace to all. We must continue in this trajectory of restorative justice, restoring our relationship with one another because we all partake in this one river as one collective body, as one humanity. God desired their creation to come together united as a body. God desires the healing and restoration of their creation that is for so long being divided. And so Jonathan talks about what the next 500 years of church looks like, and it has to look different now. Today, it has to mark radical change, the same way that God demonstrated through Elisha and then through Jesus this trajectory. We need to continue to demonstrate that 
as the new church. We need to rebirth the church and embrace this gospel of Jesus that is grounded in love for all and justice for all because our God is a just and generous God. We just celebrated Easter, a time where we remember the resurrection of Jesus and the birth and the beginning of new life. This church's vision has been to live out a just and generous expression of the Christian faith. So we must continue in that trajectory by moving away from this divisive and exclusive Christianity that locks people out of the kingdom of heaven into a kingdom of heaven that is inclusive of all, into a kingdom of heaven that reflects the entire body of God's creation. That is what the next 500 years has to look like. To move into the next 500 years of church, we need each other to bring that restoration into humanity. We, we need to extend justice and generosity to one another because we all partake in that river that is the grace of God as one body. We need each other. You saw that video, the ministry fair video, and you saw all the teams need each other. I can't stand here and preach without the AV team. We can't deliver a message of God's love without Angela. We can't, I can't even stand here if I don't have anyone watching my children downstairs who, is all, who are also teaching them a, an, a message of God's affirming love. We need each other. So if you aren't doing it already, I invite you to give by being a part of making this church happen every Sunday because no part can function without the other. 1 Corinthians 12, 21, 27 says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unrepresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body and that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So I ask you to give. Give and invest in the next 500 years of church. Invest in our vision of a just and generous expression of the Christian faith that brings restorative justice to humanity. We need you to continue in this trajectory of restoration with those that we have deemed as other. Continue to give so that we can continue to give to our community partner. We have a partnership with the Arab American Family Support Center. And in giving towards them, we are restoring shalom with the Muslim community and the immigrant community that have long been othered and feared. What I love about this partnership too is, is this week we're going to be serving them iftar dinner. That's something of their own tradition. But in coming there and serving them, we're saying we, we acknowledge you and your personhood and your faith and who you are. And there's something really beautifully healing about that. 
give so that we can support a movement of other churches who are doing the same, who no longer use the Bible as a weapon to victimize other group, victimize groups even further. Launchpad is a church planning organization that helps plant other churches that also have a progressive and inclusive theology all throughout the country. Now, we're pretty fortunate living in New York City, being exposed to different cultures. We're, we're pretty fortunate. It's, I don't love the word liberal, but it's, it's a liberal city. We're pretty fortunate for that. But there are other parts of this country where marginalized people don't have that visibility. They don't have people that honor their personhood. But there are churches that, that want, you know, people that want to build churches there, that want to spread this message of a just and a generous God. So give so that we can support these churches, so that we can see in other parts of this nation that we can see this just and generous love of God grow. This is how we need to carry the river towards the next 500 years. So everyone knows that they can all have access to this grace. So we can bring healing to the body of humanity because we, together with the next church of commissioned disciples, we, all of us, with the risen Christ within us, in shedding truth of the generosity of God's love, we can continue the mission of restorative justice. We can show that God's love extends to all, God's grace and God's mercy. Give so that we can make this happen. And then when you give, come and celebrate on May 23rd. Celebrate how this community has grown. When I first started this church, there weren't a lot of families in this church. There weren't a lot of people of color. We were not an affirming church and this was eight years ago. Let's celebrate how far we've come now. I get choked up thinking about it because there are people in other parts of the world that don't have that. So come and celebrate that on May 23rd. Let's pray, everyone. Dear God, I am so humbled by the generosity of your love that desires restoration in all of us. If you are someone who needs restoration this morning, I invite you to go to prayer. And I ask God that for every soul in here that needs restoration, that you bring them a revelation of what that looks like. Restore their personhood. I ask as, um, as they go about their day and their week, that you make their your just and generous love known to them. In your name we pray, amen.